Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, December 11th, 2020. I am John Bodhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And joining us today, uh, author, uh, commentary roastee, uh, and a host of a new, a wonderful new podcast called Post Corona, our friend Dan Senor. Hi, Dan. Hi, John. I'm, I'm actually very excited to be able to say hi, John. I listen to you guys like multiple times a week say hi, John. And now I get to say hi, John. Can I also yeah. talk about where we encourage you to, to uh, visit the site where you get a few free reads and then we ask you, you to go. subscribe? Absolutely. Commentarymagazine.com. Beautiful. And you get a, if you subscribe, you get a beautifully published, designed magazine in your mailbox how many times a year 11 times a year 11 times dan a year. is I, the best prepared guest ever it's amazing <laughs> see johnny we're just lamenting how you lack uniformity in your introduction and now clearly Apparently i have don't. uniformity that's correct that's correct um you know and also um history lacks uniformity uh noah was just pointing out i mentioned this the other day that uh with all of this talk about the efforts to steal our democracy in the aftermath of the <laughs> Uh, 2020 election um, that Noah, Noah was just uh, being uh, forcibly recalled to him the fact that in 2016, in December of 2016, when the Electoral College met to affirm the uh, vote total and the victory of Donald Trump, uh, that in fact, though he had won 306 electoral votes on election night based on the way that the states allocate the vote and, the, and who won those states, that in fact, when the dust had cleared on electoral college voting day, Donald Trump's, num the number of electors who voted for Trump was 304, not 306, and that an additional five electors on the Democratic side did not vote for Hillary Clinton. Seven electors were faithless out of the 538, the largest number uh, in apparently in electoral college history. And here we are in 2020, and there's all this efforts to, you know, sort of screw around with the electoral college or whatever. And somehow it has been thrown down the memory hole that this happened in 2016. And Noah, who was the person who championed this effort to uh, get electors who were doxxed, who had their addresses published in papers and online, who were put under uh, immense pressure, Trump electors after the 2016 election, who was the sort of leader of this effort? One of them, apparently. One of but, them uh, was. Yeah, Christine Pelosi. The daughter Nancy Pelosi's of Nancy daughter, Pelosi. Activist, documentarian. Um, yeah, so this was just an aside that was in a Politico piece this morning about the Electoral College's meeting next week. Biden's, as it were, and Biden's electors have this strategy to avoid any shenanigans and make sure that they get the majority of the Electoral College vote. And as an aside, sort of like in paragraph 15, it talked about how, well, you know, Biden's electors, they're, they're facing some you know, pressure, but nothing like the, the pressure that electors faced in 2016 from anti-Trump forces. What? I don't remember this at all. I have no recollection of this. And I clicked through to the, to the um, article about this and it describes a, a real concerted effort on the part of celebrities and Democratic politicians and activists and even Republicans who are just comforted by Donald Trump's victory to 
um, do exactly what Donald Trump is seeking to do now, which is to force the Electoral College uh, enough electors to be faithless so that you don't have a majority in the Electoral College, which would throw the election to the House of Representatives. Um, same plot, same plan, different actors. And I don't, not only do I don't remember this, there was nothing remotely like the kind of garment rending consternation over the threat that this represents to the very fabric of democracy. Okay, well, the difference here is that in 2016, there was one reason adjudged for why the Electoral College electors should change their vote and, and make this happen, which was that Hillary Clinton had won the popular vote. That wasn't that Donald Trump, I mean, obviously, implicitly, it was that Donald Trump was so awful that you should change your um, vote. I'm sorry, I got to interrupt you there, because not only that, it was, there were uh, 79 Democratic electors and one Republican calling for an intelligence briefing on Russia's role in the election ahead of the vote. So it wasn't just about the popular vote. It was about Russian interference in the 2016 elections. Gee, so there you go. But nonetheless, the, the logic that led to the initial idea that uh, Hillary Clinton had been robbed of the presidency was that she won the popular vote and that uh, this was wrong, that it was wrong that someone could... Um, win the you know win by two percentage points nationally and not take the presidency um and so now uh, the logic of trump's position is that the election was rigged and that votes were stolen and switched around and that rules were changed and all of that and therefore somehow all of this should be overturned in whatever fashion you want to try you want to try texas suing other states you want to try changing uh, you know, throwing out the vote in Pennsylvania or in Georgia, all these, all these, whatever it is, whatever you throw against the wall to stick, uh, there is no specific idea that I, I don't think is even minimally defensible unless you accept the fact that 90,000 votes in Pennsylvania were improperly cast and a bunch of votes in Georgia were improperly cast and that, that because, and this is the other interesting thing, because the media were so biased uh, against Trump that somehow the election itself was unfair, which is something that say Megyn Kelly kind of said this morning in a tweet. Uh, somehow I remember the, um, the media being unbelievably unfair to Ronald Reagan, to George H.W. Bush, to George W. Bush, and nonetheless, Ronald Reagan winning 49 states in 1984. So people who, are, who don't remember this don't understand how the legacy media in the 1980s, there were like five major institutions, not a, a billion on the, on, the, on the internet. And they were so uniformly hostile to Reagan uh, that- to say no, I mean, the, to say nothing about 2016. Right, right. So Dan, wh where do you, uh, you what's, know, your, what's your view of, uh, of all this? I'm, I'm reminded of a conversation I had in the middle of the 2016 Democratic primaries with a, with a senior executive at a cable news channel that let's just say is not Fox News, uh, not, nor, nor is it Newsmax or OAN. Um, and he was, this was before, he was deep in the primary, and it was when the cable networks were covering the hell out of Trump, but no one thought he would actually win. And this senior executive was lamenting how what a ratings disaster a Hillary Clinton presidency will be. 
and he was just he assumed she was going to win the primary and she he assumed she was going to win the general and then he he just thought after like 8 years of like ratings bonanza covering obama it's going to be ratings death a ratings famine and um I, I i think a lot of these executives feel the same way about heading into the biden presidency after 4 years of trump so they just can't let go so if there's any kind of controversy or outrage it's going around trump these are like the last days before the curtains close for these for these cable channels and they just and and for political twitter and so they cannot stop covering every little detail however disproportionate it is to how they covered a similar issue in 2016 so it's you know it's th- their business models hang in the balance but don't you think that condition will persist i mean donald trump wants to be a shadow president in yeah. the out of the white house don't you think every media institution will cover him that way for that very yeah. reason financial i think I think they're going to try. You're right. I mean, I think they're going to try. I mean, this is they're, they're hanging on here and then whatever gift he'll give them, um, they will happily take. I think they were wrong in 2016, too, by the way, because, I mean, it's not like, you know, Biden is not terribly controversial, um, but Hillary Clinton sh- surely was and would have been a, a, as president. I mean, there, there would have been plenty to cover and there would have been all sorts oh, yeah. of ish- contentious issues coming up. Oh yeah, but whatever, B- whatever, Bill whatever, whatever first, Bill. Bill is yeah. first spouse. Right, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that alone could get be its own beat. Yep. Exactly. You know, part of the reason that there will be a lack of excitement in the in the uh, surrounding the Biden administration, in my view, is something that um, uh, a point that a friend of mine made. You know, a couple uh, months ago, I wrote a column about how everybody in Washington was, you know, ancient. You know that uh, Trump was seventy four, Biden was seventy seven. Uh, McConnell was 77, Pelosi was 80, Steny Hoyer was 80, you know, um, you know, the, that basically, uh, you know, had this gerontocracy, this running, running America. Um, and uh, so get this here, here's the lineup of the incoming Biden administration. Uh, Tom Vilsack, the returning secretary of agriculture, 70. John Kerry running the climate change portfolio, 77. Uh, Janet Yellen, the new Treasury Secretary, 74. General Austin, the incoming Defense Secretary, 67. Uh, Marsha Fudge, I can't even remember what cabinet job she got. Uh, anyone HUD. remember? HUD. HUD, HUD. Okay. HUD, HUD sorry. Uh, six, 68. And then get the staffers at the White House, okay? Susan Rice, new, uh, gonna head the uh, the um, the domestic policy, policy council. Fifty six. Ron Klain, the chief of staff. Fifty nine. Neera Tandon uh, at OMB. Fifty. Uh, the reason I bring this up is that that doesn't sound old, but in point of fact, the White House staff is often startlingly young. You know, um, uh, Haldeman and Ehrlichman were in their forties uh, with Nixon. Um, Jake uh, Sullivan's young. Jake Sullivan is right, right. He's yeah. in his four. He's well, like he's forty-two 41. or forty-three. Yeah, right. The other thing that's striking about this is, I, what didn't Biden say that his presidency was going to be a transition, like a transition for this new generation of Democratic leaders yeah. that he was going to empower and elevate the the Mayor Pete's and the all, all these young yeah. rising stars, and literally one after the other, every position is being filmed filled by basically someone who had a job in the Obama administration. Well, to be Every fair, one compared of them. to Joe Biden, they are all young. Yeah. Right. It's like, it's like my, right. my, my exactly. mother, my, my mother who is, who is 93 uh, on occasion will say something about somebody and she'll say, 
oh, she's a really nice girl. And I'll say, mom, she's 75 right. years old, you know, because she's, she's 93. So anyone who is 70, it's a kid, you know, she's a kid. So yeah, Biden's looking around and he's like, that Marsha Fudge, I mean, she's really a hot up and comer, you know? <laughs> yeah, she's a, right. Well, yeah, but I mean, the young, his problem though, isn't it, isn't uh, that he can't find talent. It's that the ones who are the young, hungry, new Democrats are, are ideologically far more radical than he is. So you actually did have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez giving interviews yesterday, whining about this. Like, I'm not seeing a cabinet that looks like I, the way I want it to look. And, you know, it, so he does have that problem in well, he's also, his own coalition. He's also held back to some extent by what happened in the in the congressional elections, exactly. right? I mean, there are people in the House that he could appoint to cabinet jobs, but the Democratic majority in the House is five seats. And he's taking or fudge four already. seats. Yeah. He's taking fudge, although fudge is probably in a, a, a safe seat. But let's say he took Alyssa Slotkin uh, from Michigan, who could be who was a CIA agent, who could say she could take for CIA. That's a swing district. So he can't afford to take Alyssa Slotkin. Um, you know, there, stuff like that. The Senate is like too Yeah, but there's also members yeah. in the House who've recently lost. Max Rose, people like that, young right. moderates who are definitely young and they're not of the, of, the, of the ideological demographic that Christine's talking about, the AOC crowd, who would be interesting. But I, I think it's more of a comfort level thing. I mean, these are, you know, uh, he, he just put ahead of uh, the VA, um, Obama's chief of staff, um, Dennis McDonough. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it, this is like, you know, home week. I mean, it's like it's yeah. it's it's all these Obama alumni that he just was. I mean, why is Susan Rice head of the Domestic Policy Council? That's like perplexing to me. This is Josh Barrow's unified theory of uh, Biden's appointments, which I like, which is that they have a list of people that they know and like, and they have a list of jobs and they're just drawing lines, matching people up. And it doesn't really matter what their skill sets are. They're just, you know, people that the president is comfortable with and then in president elect. You know, um, uh, my, I, I had two jobs in, in government. Uh, one, I was a speechwriter for Reagan. And then very briefly, I helped set up the Office of National Drug Control Policy for Bill Bennett under, uh, in the, in the beginning of the Bush administration for like a couple of months. And that, that office didn't exist, right? It hadn't existed. It was, it had been incepted. And so uh, we were literally setting it up and uh, we had this, Literally, we, we were creating an org, there were like five of us who had been hired uh, below Bennett to sort of run things, to be uh, part of running things. And there was no org chart and, there were, and the jobs were being set up. And so at some point, uh, the guy who was sort of like the administrative director uh, was, was looking at a chart and he was sort of putting things around and he sort of like made me head of the in the budget office and i said to him bruce like i i can't balance my own checkbook you can't make me head of the budget office and he was like okay and then he moved another guy in there and i said well he's we were all in our like late 20s and i was like he doesn't he doesn't even own a car like you i don't think you understand what we're talking about here. So this game of like, just, you know, here you have people and here you have jobs and you sort of, this is a classic old political hack thing. You know, it's like, who cares who's in what job? You know, everything works by itself anyway. You know, no one really does anything. 
Well, in that, then Biden is fulfilling his promise to get back to business as usual. Yeah, build, build back better, right? <laughs> right yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that is, uh, it is kind of startling. Now, get, getting to uh, issues of actual policy, um, Dan, uh, as the author, co-author of Startup Nation, the most, probably the most important book written about uh, Israel in the English language uh, in, in our time and a a book that uh, posits, you know, uh, the, uh, kind of predicted uh, the the kind of nimble, uh, ever-changing diplomatic uh, possibilities that Bibi Netanyahu has now brought to fruition. Uh, obviously, the biggest one here, though we're inclined to give America all the credit for this, are the, the Abraham Accords. Uh, had this huge announcement yesterday that Morocco... Um, has basically now decided to normalize or is normalizing its relationship with, uh, with Israel. Uh, to what extent do you, do you look at this and think, this is just like a gigantic uh, package that has been sent, like a gift package that has been sent to Biden in the form of a, uh, of a, of a new and, and exciting Middle East and, um, and is he going to take the gift or is he going to throw it away? Um, I mean, the, there's such a sense of momentum to it now. I mean, Morocco's the fourth country in, in a couple of months. And I spoke to a senior White House official yesterday who said, you know, the, you know we, we have one or two more like ready to go. Now, the question is, are they going to run out of time? Uh, before they hand this off to Biden, but they also believe that they could have a map that they could hand over to the Biden administration of how to how to keep closing these. And obviously, the motivation is for some of these countries, particularly the Sunni Gulf, is Iran, the common threat of Iran. But it's also the you know to what you're referring to earlier. It's it's that they these countries look and they see a Silicon Valley sitting in their region that they've been shut off from. I mean. They could fly to Silicon Valley, which is 20, 20, basically a 20-hour flight from, from the Gulf, or they could have a direct flight that's three hours away. And it's one of the most important innovation ecosystems in the world. And so they just, and they have huge problems to solve, these countries. I mean, throughout the region, throughout the Middle East, whether it's agriculture issues, they need agri-tech, they need water tech, they need food security, they need cyber security, they need, they're totally underserved in fintech, financial tech digital health. I mean, sector after sector. By the way, every one of these areas is a an Israeli, you know, sweet in Israelis, like Israel's wheelhouse. Um, and so they're just sitting there saying, why can't we be doing business? I, I, I met with a, a member of the Saudi royal family, I won't say who, uh, two and a half years ago. And we were talking about the innovation, you know, kind of Israel's innovation story. That's what we were meeting about. And he said, I'll never forget this. He said, there's as far as we're concerned, there's the future in the Middle East and there's the past. And Israel is the future and the Palestinians are the past. We want to bet on the future. I mean, those, that's, I, I wrote it down. I was struck by it. And so these countries have all decided they want in. They want in on the strategic cooperation and the intelligence sharing, and they want in on the innovation partnerships. And so, so I think this train is leaving the station. All the Biden administration can do to your question, John, is screw it up. And I, I don't see why they would want to screw it up. I mean, I think they will. What, what could they do? They could 
put more pressure on these regimes and the on these governments in the in the Sunni Gulf, you know, the Sunni Gulf states about their own, you know, internal policies, domestic policies, which Trump hasn't done. They could beat up uh, these countries in terms of how they're operating the region, like in Yemen and elsewhere, which the Trump administration basically hasn't done. So they could start mucking around with these countries and sort of distract them. And a lot of these governments, you know, I should mention, it's about Iran, it's about tech innovation, and it's about Bibi. In other words, Bibi's stock was high in Trump's Washington. And it was in their, these governments' interest to kind of get some of the BB magic dust spread around them as they pursue whatever policy agendas they, they wanted to pursue. So sort of partnering with BB was good for them in Washington. And they may decide that partnering with BB now doesn't get them as much capital in Washington. I'm trying to understand why some of the Arab countries may be distracted or dial back the momentum a little bit, but I don't think it'll be much. So if this thing gets headed off course, I think it's going to be because of the Biden team. It is remarkable the extent to which people in Washington who presume to speak for Arab interests don't know Arab interests, who talk about this conflict as though it's you know the, the preeminent issue in the region when people in the region say it's not. We saw yesterday uh, with the Morocco decision some consternation over the horse trading that resulted in it. Um, Donald, preceding this announcement, Donald Trump announced that the United States would recognize Moroccan sovereignty over a disputed territory in Western Sahara. Um, and you saw, you know, some people saying, ah, oh, this is, you know, an assault on Arab interests. And, you know, th this is directly contravenes the kind of uh, self-determinism that we should be supporting in, in these regions, what have you. Guess what Ramallah's position is on what on Western Sahara? They think it's Moroccan. They say that it should be Moroccan territory. They recognize it as Moroccan territory. They just don't know. Yeah, it's just, by the way, it, that, it's a it's a somewhat ridiculous contention to, to be against um, uh, uh, it, the uh, recognition of Moroccan sovereignty there. I mean, um, the Polisario front. The, the, the Polisario is is a leftist. It's like a throwback from the seventies. It's a leftist Algerian backed um, front that um, presides over some really nasty um, refugee camps that are also a breeding ground for um, uh, jihad. Um, so there is there is a very good national security. Uh, interest um, that is um, being achieved uh, in, in, recognize, in recognizing uh, Moroccan sovereignty over the Western Sahara as well. But also in every one of these deals, go back 30, 40 years, there's always some horse trading between, there wasn't major horse trading in the, in the Camp David Accords with Egypt between Carter and Sadat. There wasn't major horse trading with King Hussein during, in the context of the Israeli-Jordanian Peace Accord. It, it, it was the same reaction, aha, when, when, when the Abraham Accords were first announced, aha, this is just about, the UAE is just doing it to get F-35s. It's like in every one of these deals, there are, there are um, agenda items that are not necessarily directly germane to the context of the agreement that the Arab government asks for and gets, and this is no different. Well, you know, I mean, that, that's interesting to go back to the, uh, to the Camp David Accords. Uh, the United States found itself on the hook for a couple billion dollars a year in direct aid to Israel because what, Egypt's, what Egypt got for the Camp David Accords was the restoration of its oil in the Sinai. Uh, and so, therefore, you know, the United States, you know, has has fundamentally, I don't know, where are we now? It's 30 years later. I mean, that's... Uh, and plus a major... That's $100 billion. Yeah. And plus a major direct aid package. To Egypt. Egypt. Yeah. yeah. Which yeah. is $2 billion a year. Yeah. And they're the second largest recipient of foreign aid. Like, it was yeah. a pretty good deal for Sadat. 
Yeah. And so obviously, you know, uh, Morocco, this is something Morocco wanted. As far as we know, there is a single senator, right? There is a single senator in the U.S. Senate, Jim Imhoff, who, who is, who is uh, transfixed by this issue. And, uh, and so it's not as though there is some kind of domestic market for really looking hard at how we're handling the, you know, the, right. the question of, of Morocco's uh, purity. But, but to, to, I mean, th- there are so many indicators that are f- both fascinating and amusing to me uh, in terms of how, how real this is. It's not just government to government between Israel, Israel and, the, and the Arab states. Specific, I'm talking more about the, the Sunni Gulf states. It's really people to people. I mean, with the, with, when, you know, Dennis Ross said after the Israeli-Palestinian Accords in, you know, camp in, in 93, Oslo, he, he, you know, when he was looking back, he says one of the failures was it was never people to people. It was basically the Clinton administration, Rabin and Perez, and Arafat. And we never actually got the populations, the civilian populations kind of interacting and working together and developing non-government related relationships. That is already happening between the Gulf populations and Israel. I mean, it's story after I was, at a, I was a, speaking on a webinar for the Israel Democracy Institute the other day. And one of one of the economists from Israel made the point that the, the buzz right now is the is the best way to deal with Israel's traffic problems is to announce a tech conference in Abu Dhabi or Dubai, because like there's just these floods of Israelis going to Abu Dhabi and Dubai like every week and vice versa. But my favorite one, which I just saw the other day, this is so so all these Emiratis and Bahrainians and, and, you know, I assume, you know, more quietly Saudis are excited to be doing business with Israel. So this is a, a member of the Emirati Royal family just purchased. I don't know if you saw this, a 50% stake in Beitar, the Israel, the one the Jerusalem Israeli soccer team. So, so Sheikh Hamad bin Khalifa Al Nahan, who's not speaking for the government, but he's a member of the Royal family and the government didn't want to happen. It wouldn't happen. He is now, a 50% owner of an Israeli soccer team. Now the Beitar soccer team has this like culture. It's like this right wing nationalist soccer team. So it's not just like he picked like the Tel Aviv soccer team. He picked this pretty hardcore Mizrahi, um, you know, pretty ideologically right um, soccer fan culture that he bought into. And here's his statement. The statement is amazing. He says, um, he says, I moved to be a partner in such an esteemed club. And in such a city, the capital of Israel, and one of the holiest cities in the world. So, I mean, this is happening. You, know, you, you had another leader from, I can't remember if it was Bahrain or UAE, or it may have been leaders from both, who were asked, you're doing all these transactions now with Israel, and your economies have opened up to one another. How do you feel about uh, importing goods that are manufactured in the, in the territories and settlements? And they were all on the record saying, we're fine with it. We're not going to bar any yeah. any imports from, and they're saying this like on Al Jazeera. So the degree to which this is taking off, and it's real, um, it, it's not it's not puppeteered by the offer to sell F thirty fives. It's yeah. real. Um, I, I I have this email I'm looking at. I got yesterday at eleven sixteen a.m. from a, a, a website called totallyjewishtravel.com. Okay, so that that's you're talking about like business investments, like right. heads head business. Okay, so it's an ad. Pesach in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, K Deluxe, 
March 26th to April 5th, 2021, Glot Mahadran, <laughs> Luxury Hotels, Tours, Private Seder, Shurim, Family Entertainment. Contact at kdeluxe.com, kdeluxedubai.com. Now, imagine that I had told you six months ago or seven months ago that I would have this email in my inbox right. for a glot kosher Pesach in Dubai and Abu Dhabi with Shurim, you know, and I don't know, Dan, you're probably going to go, you'll probably be speaking. You'll probably be, you and you and you and your brother-in-law, Saul Singer, will probably be speaking in Dubai at the, at, at these, uh, I'll do you one better. Saul, Saul just told me a couple of days ago, he learned over Shabbat last weekend that a number of Haredi families in Israel who have weddings planned and are under enormous pressure because they can't ha- hold large weddings now in Israel. These Haredi families are holding, they're planning their weddings for their kids in Dubai and Abu Dhabi. So Israeli Haredim flying to Dubai to have. Yeah, I mean, you know, so that, that in and of itself uh, expre- sort of suggests a kind of uh, readiness on the part of, the, of, of both I don't know how to describe it because it's not really, you know, it's not like the populations of Dubai and Abu Dhabi are welcoming Jews with open arms exactly, but, um, but they, are, they are ready for commerce and concert and connections between these two formerly entirely separated people. Morocco is an interesting case because Morocco has been privately... Right. Wouldn't, wouldn't exactly say it's an ally, but uh, Morocco has certainly been is the was the friendliest of the you know, what you would call North North African countries to 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 Israel over the last half century, and and it certainly does not has not been governed by an attitude of of um, of sort of you know hostility. Like it's a, it's a transactional relationship. They do things together, and they. They have connections together and have been much more pacific than in in other places. But it is still striking because it's a it's a it's not one of these Gulf countries whose main fear is that Iran is going to invade or you know blow right. up or do something to them. This is mu- this is much more along the lines of what you're talking about, which is that the Middle East is ready to move on from this period, and the question is, are we going to somehow gum up? the works um, yeah it's a fo- it's fomo you know the, the, many of these countries now it's like th- now they fear of missing out <laughs> they want yeah. one in on the israel parade yeah um you know what occurs to me in talking about this so uh, you know there was this idea at the end of the cold war that um uh freer markets and more business and investment in russia and the, the uh, former Soviet states and China would lead to a political opening. And it's it, 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 in huge part that did not come to pass. Um, I've written about it at various points. Others have as well. Um, in some sense, that did work in the Gulf to some degree. I mean, I mean, the, the, the huge um, building and commerce and um, tech activity in, in the Emirates preceded this um, and I think sort of forced them out into the world in a different way. Yeah, I agree with that. Only thing I'd add is that the, so, so the broader Arab 
world market, 22, 23 countries in the Arab League, you know, you're talking about a, a market, an addressable market of, you know, five, 600 million people, consumers. That market is one of the most underserved markets on the consumer internet. I mean, it's, it's really, um, it's pathetic. And so, so UAE has been, has been building a little bit of an ecosystem, a tech ecosystem to serve that market and build companies that could become like the dominant player in all these different verticals in, um, in the broader Middle East. But they, with a couple of exceptions, they haven't really pulled it off and they haven't pulled it off because they're not great at building companies from the bound, from the ground up sort of scrappy startup entrepreneurial companies and their tech is not very deep. They have a huge R and D problem and it's hard to just solve that R and D problem by spending from your sovereign wealth fund and trying to drive it down. You need like just a critical mass of engineers and, you know, and they, so UAE and many of the countries in the region don't have it. Israel gives them both of those. Israel gives them entrepreneurs who know how to build companies and it gives them R and D to both service those companies and, and mentor engineers or aspiring engineers in the Arab world. So, I mean, a lot of the chatter now is in the UAE among in the tech ecosystems, let's go build companies now to target the whole region. No one's nailed this yet. We want to be the ones to nail it. And we've got the best partner in the world because we've got, we've got the second most important innovation ecosystem in the world outside of Silicon Valley. So um, yeah, I, I think the upside for them is, is pretty massive. So what is this, assuming that Biden doesn't bungle this terribly and that this economic uh, outreach continues and, and flourishes, what is that going to mean for the, on the domestic side here in the U.S., for the BDS movement, for the, for the sort of pro-Palestinian ideologically motivated campus activism that actually here has had a fair amount of success in changing and, and disallowing certain things uh, to even be discussed. I, that seems to be growing at the same time that this opening and these, these successes are, are happening. Do you see anything altering that or is this yeah, a separate? I, I, think it, I think it makes it very hard to normalize the BDS narrative when there's all this um, collaboration and, between the Arab world and Israel. And I also think uh, when there's gonna be no movement on the Palestinian track. So I. I actually am very skeptical that the Biden administration is going to move aggressively to try to reach, put pressure on Israel to reach some kind of Israeli-Palestinian agreement. I think they will do some things. They'll undo some of the things that that try to undo some of the things that uh, that Trump did. They won't move the embassy back to Tel Aviv, but they may reopen the consular the consulate office in Jerusalem to service the Palestinians. They'll restore some of the funding for like these hospitals in the Palestinian territories. And so they'll do small things. I think whatever they need to do to formally reopen the Palestinian diplomatic office in Washington, small and symbolic. But what I don't think they are going to do, the Biden administration, is expend a lot of capital trying to pressure Netanyahu, assuming he's still prime minister, and Abbas to reach a deal. I, I don't think, when I talk to some of the incoming Biden folks, they have, they're under no illusion that they can bet on a boss and the Palestinian Authority. So they do not believe there's a deal to be done. And, um, and so I think the combination of all this collaboration and the Biden administration's own, I think, unwillingness to do anything, you know, aggressive and ambitious on the Palestinian track, it's the BDS movement will still be around. It'll probably start to sound more strident because they're going to be desperate but they're not, they're going to become less mainstream 
because here you even have a, a democratic administration in office that's not really doing anything to advance their agenda. It's, um, so, yeah, I mean, you saw some of that stridency, by the way, recently. I, I don't know if you guys followed this, where Peace Now, which was like the original left-wing, quote-unquote, pro-Israel, pro-peace organization. It was like the precursor to J Street. So they were hosting an event in, on the anniversary of Yitzhak Rabin's uh, assassination to honor Yitzhak Rabin. And AOC was supposed to speak at it. And she pulled out at the last second. And she pulled out the last second because she was informed by her staff that Yitzhak Rabin was, uh, was you know, responsible for brutal human rights abuses of Palestinians when he was defense minister, when, when he was a general. And, you know, it, you know and so, so I, that, that's what I mean. It's like, and, and all these professional peace processors in Washington were, you know, who, who sort of came of age in the Clinton administration were horrified. You know, they're so sad and disappointed that, you know, they need to understand Yitzhak Rabin was a man of peace and he corrected his ways and blah, blah, blah. They, but I guess what, what they don't realize is, is that that ground is shifting beneath their feet. And, at, and, and the, 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 to be critical of Israel is now you have to be so strident to be critical of Israel. And I think the stridency... I think it'll move more in a more strident direction because the, the critics of Israel are going to be more desperate for all the reasons we're talking about. But I also think they'll be more marginalized. Right. I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, you sort of alluding to uh, Bibi Netanyahu's future. But first, let me talk to you about today's sponsor, the Bonson Group. Uh, I'm just going to talk to you straight, like I've been talking to you straight about what I've heard about financial advice and financial investment and how the vast majority of professional advisors are pretty bad. And for a number of reasons, lazy, disengaged, uninterested in the real work required of properly stewarding a client's assets. They don't work very hard. And when it gets to the important stuff, like how markets actually work, the intersection of public policy with investing, the relevance of monetary policy and the Fed and modern finance, it's like talking to a high school kid, the level of sophistication that you might get from a professional wealth advisor. And the, so the work ethic and the intellectual capacity in this field le uh, can leave a lot to be desired. But that is not the case for the Bonson Group, a bi-coastal wealth management firm with over $2.5 billion in assets under management. Every single day is an intellectual journey. Client communications are a way of life. Every bit of the Bonson Group's perspective on the economy and capital markets comes from their own fresh resource and opinion, and every client is given his own bespoke family office experience. Read the Bonson Group's weekly investment uh, commentary at DividendCafe.com. Read its daily market updates at TheDCToday.com. Check out the Bonson Group for a refreshing antidote to the laziness and intellectual spaghetti that is today's investment advice industry. That's the Bonson Group, where an actual economic worldview sits on the foundation of the best investment advice in the industry. Check out DividendCafe.com and TheDCToday.com to get to know the Bonson Group today for your wealth management needs. So, Dan, um, there's a lot of ferment in Israel. Uh, uh, Bibi Netanyahu's party, uh, Likud, the speaker of the Knesset, or the late speaker of the Knesset, recent speaker, uh, Gidon Saar. Starting his now, own party, yeah. Is now starting his own party. Uh, there has been a move on Bibi's uh, right flank, uh, at least in public opinion terms, by Naftali Bennett, his former aide, who has also has a party. Everybody's got a party. Um, 
BB's trial, um, I think, is scheduled for January, assuming that, you know, COVID doesn't uh, push it back still further. And so there are, he's being, uh, he's, he's been indicted in three uh, cases of um, influence peddling and uh, gimmickry. Uh, these, I think, are really lousy cases. At least in an American context, it would be lousy cases. God only knows what they're like in the Israeli context. I we'll go, won't go into detail. But um, how much of, obviously, this is, Israel's a functioning democracy and it, no one person is responsible for anything, but Bibi has been prime minister now for 11 years. And, um, and it, this time coincides not only with the kind of uh, retirement of the Palestinian of the direct confrontations between the Palestinians and Israel, or at least have, have for the last six years um, in any serious fashion, but also the rise of the, the maturation of the startup nation that is the subject of your book, which I think was published just before Bibi's. It was, uh, it was published late 2009, which was. Right. So Bibi had just yeah. basically taken. Yeah. He gotten, the he got, he'd formed a government just after Obama got elected. So it was. Right. Yeah. So, right. So. In his uh, most recent round. Yeah. So the startup nation, the, the growth of Israel's tech sector and the startup nation was a real thing that he came into office paralleling and had played some role in as the finance minister in the Sharon government in terms of doing some deregulating and all of that. But how much of where Israel is now is the 27th richest country in the world and all of this diplomatic ferment. Um, what kind of danger is that placed in by Bibi's trial and the possibility that, uh, you know, uh, he, he might uh, leave the scene. So, um, for Bibi to, to hear Bibi tell it, he he is. The, our book should have been called "Startup Nation: The Bibi Netanyahu Story." Yeah. Um, I mean, he he uh, he 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 believes he he delivered this innovation revolution to Israel, and I do think when he was finance minister under Sharon, he did do a lot of good stuff on 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 um, welfare reform, on deregulation, on privatizations, on on tax cuts in certain areas. So he. He helped liberalize the Israeli economy. It still needs a lot of liberalizing, but he did some good work. Um, I think the tech boom or the, the seeds for the tech boom well predated Bibi and well predated really any of the major Israeli politicians. So I don't think Bibi was responsible for the tech boom uh, in terms of it being a really important part of Israel's economy and a really serious global player in the global economy, where I think... Netanyahu deserves enormous credit is taking this, you know, this natural resource, if you will, Israeli human capital, like it's tech to Israel is like what oil is to Saudi Arabia, right? He's taken the tech boom in Israel and used it for geopolitical leverage. And that has been, I believe, his genius. And, and I think so much, even before you get to the Gulf, so much of these openings around the world have been diplomatic breakthroughs have been a result of Netanyahu. I mean, look at India now. We take it for granted that India and Israel are locked arms. Now, you know, 30 years ago, I think India was the Indian government was like part of the like one of the campaign managers of the you know the orchid you know one one of the symphony conductors of the non-aligned movement in the UN General Assembly, organizing all these anti-Israel 
votes in the UN General Assembly. India had terrible, toxic relations with Israel. 2017, uh, Netanyahu travels to India, brings a delegation of business leaders from Israel, economic experts, tech gurus, and you know he he figured out is uh, India has a huge water problem and they have huge agricultural problems and and he had set up he'd used the tech community in Israel particularly in drip irrigation and a couple of other areas to set up all these centers of excellence around India and he basically calculated that if we can help these farmers in India increase their yields by like five or six times you could have a second agricultural revolution in the subcontinent and this delegation led by Netanyahu went to India and they were, I mean, I spoke to some of them. They said they, they couldn't believe it. Modi was taking them around to these villages and like tens of thousands of Indian farmers were showing up to greet them like they were the Beatles. And, and so Netanyahu, and then less than two, a year and a half later, Netanyahu had Modi come to Israel. And, and so I, and they have this, the, the stuff they're doing, the, the co-innovation that India and Israel are doing is, is quite something. And I can go, like literally continent by continent. He's been doing this in Europe. He's been doing it all throughout Latin America. He's been doing it in Africa. He's, I mean, he visits, like there was a period about a year and a half ago where he was visiting a different African country like every other month. It was the first time they'd ever received an Israeli leader. What do they want from Israel? They want this, they want access to this tech ecosystem. And I think he's been very savvy about how to take this tech ecosystem and, you know, use it to produce diplomatic relationships and diplomatic breakthroughs and you know it has a self-fulfilling you know it, it's it, it becomes circuitous because as these diplomatic breakthroughs happen it makes it easier for these countries to do business with israel and so that further fuels the the you know the tech economy in israel one stat that just blew me away it's just in the news this week so when we wrote startup nation the the big whopping number was that israel attracted about two to two and a half billion dollars in uh in global venture capital, you know, so basically all this innovation capital is, full, you know, swashing around the world. Israel's attracting a couple billion of it, which on a per capita basis was the highest in the world, higher than higher than the U.S. There were just just numbers out now that Bloomberg reported earlier this week. Israel's attracting close is on track to this year attract ten billion dollars in global venture capital. I mean, five, four or five x what they were doing a decade ago. That all happened under Netanyahu. Right. It also happened because the Israeli, the sectors that Israel's playing in are re really matter a lot to where the global economy is going, especially during COVID, actually, especially because of the changes during COVID. Um, so so there's a lot of money, but he deserves credit for taking, for really opening up a lot of these relationships that I think make it easier for investors from around the world to feel comfortable and not feel any political stigma uh, with investing in Israel because their own governments are, are, are welcoming Netanyahu with open arms. So I guess the question is um, if this has matured over the course of the last 10, 11 years, uh, can it, uh, and you say it's sort of circuitous or, or it reinforces itself. Um, how dependent is it on him? I mean, let's say something happens and he, he is convicted and has to leave office uh, does Gidon Saar know this? Does uh, Naftali Bennett, who himself worked in tech, does he know it? Do any of the other people in Israeli politics know it? Um, one of the main slaps on Bibi is that uh, he, in order to accrete power and hold on to power, he has made it, he has not 
made any followers. He has not encouraged yeah, he has no bench. any partnership. He, has no, he has no bench. He doesn't want a bench because the bench might turn on him the way John Major turned on Thatcher or something. Um, but uh, he may be forcibly, you know, the bench may be uh, become the 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 opening squad if he, you know, may become the first team um, if he is forced from power. Uh, I so this the lack of a bench in Israel, at least on the right, really does um, depress me. I mean, he's 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 sadly done a very good job of doing exactly what you just said, which is just making sure no one kind of gets oxygen, gets out altitude. Um, I, I think there are some like Bennett who made a lot of money in tech before before he went into politics. And there are a couple of others uh, who come from the tech economy who, who play in politics. But there's no, other than a couple of them like Bennett, there, there aren't, you know, there's one, Arel Margulit, who was in the Labor Party, ran for leadership of the Labor Party. He was a very successful venture capitalist from JVP, which is the Jerusalem Venture Partners, big venture fund in Israel. He left you know, ran for leadership of labor, served in the parliament, lost. Now he's done with politics. He's disgusted by it. He's gone back to his venture fund. Um, there's, so there's no one who really gets it the way he got it. And he got the diplomatic op- opportunity, the potential geopolitical breakthroughs. And he also knows something about the business world. He knows a lot about economics. He went to MIT. He worked at, uh, at the Boston Consulting Group. Um, so he, and, and because his English is, is so fluent, he can not only speak English, but he can speak English in business terms or speak mm-hmm. in business terms in English. So it gives him huge reach um, globally. And I, and I don't see anyone else who has, who has that background, has those skills on the one hand. On the other hand, I do feel at this point, it's bigger than Bibi. I mean, the tech economy in Israel is, is really... Um, you know, it's its own thing and it's larger than any one leader. And I, and so I think Israel will be fine. will be more than fine. So Dan, you have, you have just launched uh, a couple of weeks ago, you launched a new podcast of your own Mm -hmm. called post Corona. It's an interesting moment for it because of course it comes. And then, uh, you know, two weeks later, we, we now have, I guess the emergency approval or we're on the verge of our, you know, on Sunday of the total emergency approval of the Pfizer vaccine, maybe to be followed by the Moderna vaccine. And so the idea of your podcast, which you can find on Apple Stitcher and wherever you get your podcasts post Corona is uh, how to look at the world as we emerge out of this uh, horrible period. It's great. You had Billy Bean on the, the, uh, the, you know, Brad Pitt, portrayed baseball genius who now owns teams all over the world, apparently, and uh, some other people. Anyway, uh, what was your inspiration and why should people listen? Like many of us during the first wave, March, April, May, uh, what did we all do? We spent a lot of time talking with friends and colleagues about, you know, what all this means, COVID and where it's all heading. And I found myself doing that in my day job at work. I found myself doing it just out of my own kind of intellectual curiosity. And, you know, we were talk. I would be talking to people about all these, you know, massive changes that are going to result from COVID. Some really good and some really bad. But, there, but some of the changes that we were living through were going to outlive the virus. And we were trying to figure out what are the ones that are really going to outlive it. So we're not, we weren't as interested in the here and now, the trans-corona, the kind of how we navigate through it. We were interested in, in the 
period once we get through it and we look back and say, wow, can we, can you ever believe we did that? You know, so what, what will be transformed? So some of the, some of the sectors we're looking at, in fact, we're working on an episode right now are very exciting. The future of healthcare, right? So you're talking about a, you know, $3.54 trillion U S industry that unlike just about every industry in America has barely been touched by tech, right? Travel has been touched by tech. Uh, purchasing tickets for sporting events have been touched by tech. Ordering packaged goods has been touched by tech. I mean, you can literally go through every part of our, our transactions in, you know, in our daily lives. They've somehow been touched by tech. 70% of U.S. hospitals today still use fax machines and still mail records. To get you records, 70% of them still rely on fax machines or they rely on the mail. Right now, and they require you, it's so crazy because of regulation and because of the power of the insurance companies, they require you to go see a doctor in a doctor's office or go to a hospital for, for everything. What has COVID done? Most of the people who've gotten coronavirus, who have antibodies, actually have never stepped foot in a doctor's office. I mean, obviously ones with severe symptoms have, but the ones who have not had severe symptoms have been diagnosed and treated at home with basically the the device of a of a telephone with a camera and speakers and it's all been digital done digitally so basically you know remote computer assisted healthcare diagnostics and healthcare treatment and people seem to really like it so that the number of people in the last 6 months in the United States who are now being treated for healthcare needs digitally has increased 30 fold i mean just to give you a sense all these companies now are coming online that are in the digital health and telemedicine space. This, by the way, this sector is a huge sector in Israel. There's gonna be a lot of startups already and there will be a lot more coming out of Israel in this space. And so the entire, when you think about how much time you, th- you, you take servicing in your, in your year, servicing medical bureaucracy, and if, all, you know, and if all of that or a lot of it is taken away, think of how many hours you have found in your life and in the lives of your kids and what that does to like the productivity of our economy. So we're looking at these sectors where COVID has basically taken like what otherwise would have been 10 years of digitization and, and like slapped it into a period of six months and it's here to stay. So, and like I said, healthcare is a positive one. I think higher education is another area where you're going to see some real action that could be permanent. And then there are worrisome ones. I mean, I, we have an episode that we just, um, that we just recorded that's posting today on the future of subways. So, so the New York City, I don't need to tell you all, the New York City subway system is a mess. And, and it's a microcosm, not only of, of subway systems around the world, but it's a microcosm, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of microcosm of New York. This inertia has set in, like why hasn't there been reform of our public transportation? Why hadn't there been reform of, of healthcare, like this direction towards digital health before COVID? Because, there was this inertia. It was like people just did, did things the way they did it. And what COVID did is it like flipped the inertia. So in the case of healthcare, doctors and patients said, look, if I don't have to go into a hospital or I don't go to a doctor's office, I don't want to. And like the doctors, the physicians were on board with this. So let's quickly move to, you know, digital care, remote care. In the case of subways, half of the MTA budget is dependent on riders. Half of it comes from, from, you know, government authorities and taxes, but half of it comes on riding ridership fares. And when a big chunk of your riders have skipped out of town, they've left, not all of them, but a lot of them. And there are no incentives to bring them back to town. 
So the inertia is flipped in the other way. And I think the subway system, which is the focus of our most recent episode, is in big trouble because the, the, there's, the revenues have dried up. I don't think they're going to come back quickly, even with a vaccine. They'll come, out, they'll come back somewhat, but not as quickly. And I think the MTA is going to be pressured to cut services. And when they cut services, as people are trying to return to work, they're going to see it was a fiscal situation. It's now turned into a service problem. It used to take me eight minutes to wait, wait for a subway. Now it's taking me 35 minutes to wait for a subway. Forget it. I'll take an Uber or I'll or a walk or I'll take a city bike. And so I think public transportation is in big trouble. I think digital, you know, the healthcare scene is, is there's some exciting opportunities. We had Billy Bean on, as you mentioned, to talk about the future of sports. Um, I think the, I mean, what he points out, not, not to digress, but it's interesting. I mean, what he points out is the, the COVID era will give rise to, if he, we calculated there are about 105 sports that people pay attention to in the world. The top five are the obvious ones, right? You know, soccer, cricket, baseball, American football, uh, maybe, maybe hockey, tennis, but then ap- right. tennis, right. Golf. After that, there's like a bunch of sports you've never heard of, right? Uh, professional bull riding, darts. Uh, these are, by the way, sports with, which have huge audiences. Um, uh, windsurfing, badminton. I mean, some, so these sports are not on TV. They don't require large audiences. In fact, most of them don't have any audiences in person. And when there was this complete blackout of sports for the first few months, people were so hungry for sports a number of these sports you've never heard of took off on social media. And because social media can aggregate these massive audiences without having to do TV broadcast deals, they've built real audiences and real followings. And, and the age, the average age, of, as Billy points out in our episode, the average age of a, of a baseball fan is in their mid to late 60s, which he says he fits that demographic. The average age of someone consuming these sports I'm talking about on social media is like in their late 20s or early 30s. So some of these some of these sports got a huge lift. The sports global sports economy is like a, is like a half a trillion to a trillion dollar uh, business. So I think you're going to see, so we're having these conversations about, you know, what's going to, what's going to get lit up because of COVID in a good way. And what is in big trouble uh, in a bad way, but really understanding the changes that outlived this period. So everybody go to your, podcast supplier and subscribe to post corona dan senor it's been great having you uh fascinating interesting conversations everybody have a great weekend for christine abe and noah i'm john potthoritz keep the candle burning